Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Hello, everyone. <clears throat> We're going to carry on in our um, series on the book of Daniel today. Ah, Davina, in my bag, could you just grab me up? There's a book in there called Against the Flow. Could you grab that for me, please, love? Thank you. Um, I just want to recommend... Uh, this book to you. Thanks, love. This is by, anyone heard of John Lennox? Yeah. Oh, wow, great. Pleasantly surprised. So John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. So he's not a pastor. Professor of mathematics um, at University of Oxford and emeritus fellow in mathematics and philosophy of science at Green Templeton College. In other words, he's clever. Um, but he's written a book on Daniel. It's an excellent, excellent book. Um, I'll be quoting it at some point during the sermon today. It's a brilliant book. It's, it, is it a commentary? Not, not, not in a conventional sense, but he goes, goes through the story and pulls out the most um, brilliant, insightful points. He's an apologist, so he spends a lot of time, not saying sorry, but an apologist is someone who defends the faith. He spends a lot of time in debates with people like Richard Dawkins and others. And um, I would say this, that I do think that these are days where you need to know what you believe and why. If you are a Christian, if you're a confessed disciple and a follower of Jesus, these are days where you need to know what you believe and why. Most of us will, in these days, face crunch moments. Uh, And in those crunch moments, wisdom, clarity and courage are needed. And we find that blend of virtues in in Daniel. And this is the kind of book that will prepare you for crunch moments. Um, At at the end of the day, in those moments, you need the Holy Spirit. But you can prepare yourself. You can be diligent. And I want to urge you, please do put in the time um, reading stuff that's going to really help you. Um, I don't know how many of you are as horrified as I am by the sort of the update on how much time I spent on my phone this week, you know. What? And I then begin to tell myself how much of that would have been work time, meaningful conversations and the like, and it would have been. But there's a whole other load of that time that was nonsense. Um, And I just think, you know, I'm speaking to myself as much as you guys, we, we, we need to make sure... That um, you know, praise God for leisure and time where you can just switch off and do something. But we also need to be prepared, <laughs> and this is the kind of book that will really prepare you for that. So I'm going to read a quote from that uh, later. Um, we're going to chapter five of Daniel today. Now, chapter five, just so you know, a bit of context. This this takes place about 45 years after Daniel and his friends were exiled. So now Daniel's probably around about 60. Okay, and uh, I want to make a point about that from the perspective of sometimes you can read a bit like Daniel and think it was one drama after the other. Do you know what you think? Wow, why isn't my life as dramatic and amazing as that? It's the same with the book of Acts, which covers 40 years. The Greeks had two words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos just represents, which is where we get our word chronology from, just represents the kind of ongoing day-to-day of life. Kairos is a moment. So we're all in the chronos, but all of us have these kairos moments. And it's important that we understand both, because if you're just all about the kairos, you're going to implode just doing day-to-day life. 
There are quiet years, and that's okay. And sometimes as charismatic Pentecostal Christians, we can become addicted to drama, addicted to fluster, addicted to excitement. Okay? There are, there's just the day-to-day faithfulness. Which is often, often it's just, you know, there's what I remember one of the, if you look, I think it's between Genesis chapter 16 and 17, um, there's 13 years. There's just, there's nothing, just, there's nothing, just a gap. It's 13 years. Just faithfulness. Just following the Lord. That's really important that we build that in. But there are kairos, there's crunch moments. And the book of Daniel, it focuses on those crunch moments. So it's important we see them in context. They're in the context of decades of faith, quiet faithfulness. That's really important. But there are big moments. If there's never a Kairos moments, odds are you're spending your whole life hiding in your bedroom. So you need some Kairos moments too. All right. So here we go. Chapter 5. Um, anything more to say on this? This sermon is called Wince, Wobbled and Weighed. Okay? Wince, Wobbled and Weighed. Let's read the first uh, five verses first of all of... Um, Sorry, the first four verses of chapter five. This is the wince. This is the wince moment. Wince is where, if if English is not your first language, you're thinking, what is he saying? Wince is when you go, no. Wince is when someone does something and you go, no. That's a wince. Okay, here we go. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. No. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. This is a truly wince moment. This is not going to end well. This is no. It's reminiscent of a story in the New Testament where King Herod's holding a feast and himself is drunk. And uh, the daughter of his wife Herodias, who he's, he's, he's married her, but she was his brother's wife, so it's adulterous. John the Baptist has condemned it and as a result has been imprisoned. Well, his wife's daughter dances in front of Herod and his guests. And Herod then promises her anything she wants in his drunken folly up to half his kingdom. And she goes and has a short interaction with her mum and comes back and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Of course, Herod in his drunken folly is publicly promised, spoken nonsense. And regrettably, even himself, because he feared John the Baptist did that very thing. It's a very reminiscent moment. It's a, it's a royal moment. It's a feast. It's drunkenness. The Bible never condemns the consumption of alcohol. I'll enjoy a pint of beer and a glass of wine with the next person. But drunkenness is 
continually, consistently condemned throughout the whole of Scripture because you say and do things that you regret. You just, you think, you wake up the next day and you think, did I really do that? And this is a context of just drunken folly. And he calls for these vessels that are holy. Now, what does holy mean? The word means set apart. So you, in order to understand it, you have to have the idea of something common and you set, set it apart. So you might like a pile of vessels, a pile of cups or various things. But then you take some and you set them apart for special use. That's what holiness means. It's something when something is different from just the normal. It's set apart. And these vessels were deliberately built and formed for a holy purpose to be used in the worship of of God in in the temple. That's what they were for. And they were carried off when the temple was raised to the ground under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And they've been stored away. And he calls for them. And they do this uh, craziness. Absolute craziness with them. You see, back then there were certain items that were considered holy. We don't have that. In the same way as Christians, as believers, in terms of specific items. We're not the kind of Christians that would be into specific things, relics and stuff. Oh, we're not, it's not how, how do we relate to holiness as Christians? Because I think it's something we've got to think about perhaps a bit more than we do. I don't know if we always give this enough thought. The Bible says God is holy. In fact, it says holy, holy, holy. We use words like very. In the Hebrew language, they would just repeat the word to make a point really holy. There are creatures in heaven whom if we saw them, we would fall apart. They cover their face because they can't even look at God. He's that holy. And the Bible says he's made us holy. We're a holy people, a holy nation. We've been set apart for him. He has set us apart. What for? For him. So we've become holy. We're set apart from just Humanity as a whole, we're the people of God now. We were part of that. He's pulled us out and now we are set apart for him. Holy, holy, we are holy to the Lord. We're like those vessels in a sense, but we're people. And so how we treat one another, there's a lot of implications about that. How we relate to one another. Because all of humanity is made in the image of God. But then also there's this sense in which when you're with a brother or sister, God's, God, God indwells them by his Holy Spirit. How we treat them. There's things that you just, you just don't say and you don't do. And in fact, you could, eat, you could probably go almost, you could argue. I mean, the Bible says in Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, in a sense, everything's sacred. Because it's not, it didn't just appear. He made it. And he made all things for his glory. And so there are kind of degrees. There are, there are such things as the holy and, and the common. But actually, everything is sacred. And I do think it's something we need to just really allow to get into us because it affects the way you live. It affects the way you think. It affects the way you speak. It affects the way you treat things. It affects the way you um, honour and worship God. That you don't, you know, that he is holy, holy, holy. So he's not like me. He's made me holy, but he's holy, holy. He's in a class of his own. Transcendent. I might be his friend, but he's not my mate. You understand what I'm getting at there. He's holy, holy, holy. He's the king of glory. It impacts the way I relate to the church, the way I speak about the church. Why? Because he's holy people. 
If, 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 if he's made them good enough for himself and accepts them, then I do the same. Who am I to argue against what he has made holy? We don't profane that. This is, and what's happening here is just absolute profanity. One of the biggest, one of the biggest um, marks of human fallenness is, says in Romans 3 verse 18, that there's no fear of God before their eyes. No genuine sense of reverence for him. No fear of God. Just do whatever you like. Do whatever you want. No. Wince. Wobbled. Let's read verses 5 to 9. Oh my goodness. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's colour changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his colour changed and his lords were perplexed. Have you ever heard the phrase, the writings on the wall? That's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. It means the matter's settled and it's time up. It's done. It's as good as done. Someone's reign or rule out of writings on the wall. It's over. It's over. That's where it comes from. The Bible contrasts two ages and it calls them days. The day of judgment and the day of salvation. The Bible calls the age we live in now the day of salvation, meaning during, it, during this age, you can get saved. <laughs> okay? During this age, the main, the main thing on God's agenda, if you like, is the salvation of the nations, the salvation of the lost. That's what God is, that's what God is about, and he's commissioned us to be about that. It's the day of salvation. But there's another age coming called the day of judgment. In the day of judgment, you can no longer be saved. That's crunch time. That's decision time. Here in this story, the next age comes crashing in on this one. It's judgment. Let me read to you from John Lennox. Years before, when Daniel and his friends had resisted an attempt to make them drink the wine in the king's court, it had led to them looking better in appearance and fitness than the other students. Now it was the emperor who was losing his colour as a result of his uninhibited blasphemous drinking. The god that Belshazzar didn't believe existed had broken through all his feeble defences and finally gained the king's undivided attention. It must have been terrifying for him to discover in this way that the god he did not believe in was the God who was there. Some people like Belshazzar are outrageous sinners, flamboyant sinners, exhibitionist sinners. Others are quiet and private sinners. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all in the same hot water when it comes to the holiness of God. All of us, naturally. If a hand were to appear now, as I'm preaching... And write all my failings on the wall. 
to write the secrets of my heart on the wall. It's not a comfortable thought. Now, there's two things I want to say about this. We've got to, we've got to, if I could not preach this passage without preaching on judgment. <laughs> we've got to preach it. That's what's in the passage. Two things I want to say. Number one, the few moment Jesus said, I didn't come to judge, but to save. Right? So he's the, he can judge. Why? Because he's sinless. I'm really, only someone sinless can judge. Because as soon as you're sinful and you start judging others, it, it's basically, well, you're, you're throwing stones. <laughs> But you're, you need the stones thrown at you too. Yeah? Don't that, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Yeah. That's why it's ugly when humans kind of are judgmental. It's horrible. It's ugly. Why? Because, well, what, what about you? What's going on in your heart? Jesus can judge because Jesus said himself, Who's, Who of you can convict me of sin? Utterly righteous. No one. But he said, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. Hallelujah. If a hand appeared on the wall and started writing all my shortcomings, I, w- I, would, dec- I would declare to, to that writing and to that hand the blood of Jesus. I would say, yeah, all of that is true. All of that is true, but he came to save me. I don't have to lean into self-justification. I don't have to lean into why I'm not that bad. I am that bad. I am that bad. But Jesus' blood was shed for me. He saved me. Okay? I'm not saved myself. I'm not saved because I'm a preacher now. That's utter nonsense. I go to church now. No, no false foundation, trap door. I'm saved by the blood of Christ. Okay, so that's hallelujah. But the second thing is this, and we have to reckon with it, is that there is a there is a, a call on the church of Jesus Christ to live and walk in repentance. There's so many different ways you can describe the church. One of the ways you can describe it is we're the house of repentant sinners. It's one way you can describe it legitimately. Let me just read to you some scriptures where, listen, this is Psalm 50, and God is speaking to his people, Israel, at this point, and he says this to them. He says, Psalm 50, he says, You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. Speaking to his people. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was like you. It's God speaking. Because I, I, I didn't judge you straight away. You thought I was like you. thought I was just like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. When people who declare themselves to be God's people walk in unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. We all have sin. We all stumble in many ways. We all struggle. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But when those who call themselves his people walk in unrepentant sin, God says, careful. Careful, because at what point does that become a facade, hypocrisy? At what point, at what point does this work anymore? When on the one hand you're saying, I'm so grateful, Jesus, you died for my sin and you shed your blood for my sin. And on the other hand, you are unrepentantly, you are as a way of a lifestyle and practice, just walking into it. 
It doesn't, at some point, that doesn't work anymore. It becomes a serious problem. Romans 2 says this, very important again. It says, um, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what it's there for. His kindness isn't so that you can carry on sinning happily. His kindness is there to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's so important that we get our heads around this stuff. There's some teaching out there that says God doesn't judge the church. God does judge the church. Let me just help you understand this because there's so much, so many of us in different ways being pastored by the internet, right? This pastor, this thing, you've got to watch this. Let me just, let me just show you the Bible. Okay? You want to hear about the Bible? Right? The, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you've passed out of judgment and into life. Hallelujah. Okay? So if you genuinely believe in Christ, what that means is this. It's extraordinary. It means that you're no longer, you're no longer sitting with the, with the sword hanging over your head. Okay? You're delivered from that into a relationship with God, total forgiveness, where you can walk with God and know that you are accepted as you are as a repentant sinner who's also now become a saint, but repentant. You see, here's the thing. Sometimes people think that love equals acceptance. God lo- Does God love the whole world? Does God accept the whole world? If God accepted the whole world, you just, just take, there's no need for the gospel anymore. Just take it out. Love and acceptance are not the same thing. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son who had to go through horrors to pay the price for our sin. And then as we trust in Christ and repent of our sin, God receives us into his family. Okay, So love and being received and accepted, they're different things. And there's something that happens in between, which is the gospel. Jesus, what Jesus does, what God, the judge becomes the judged. And we see it and go, oh my goodness. We fall on our knees and we repent and we're reconciled to him. So we're brought out of that kind of judgment kind of world, if you like, judgment scene. And yet, because God really, really takes seriously now that we're his people, if we claim to follow him, or, and are really his, but if we fool around with sin, God will deal with us in judgment. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians 11. You won't hear this preached much. <laughs> but it's in there. 1 Corinthians 11. It's really important we understand this stuff. Otherwise you end up with cheap grace. right? And cheap grace is when you no longer value the blood of Christ. Okay, and when you stop valuing the blood of Christ, I don't know what you become. I don't know if you, how you're still a church. You just become kind of a, a group of people. But listen to what it says. So Paul, so the Corinthian church, they've not been taking um, the bread and the wine in a worthy way. The rich ones would get there earlier because they didn't work as long hours. They'd eat all the food. They'd get drunk on all the wine. The poor who worked long hours turn up late. There's nothing left for them. There's supposed to be one body. Okay, it's, it, There's injustice. There's all the stuff God hates. And listen to what Paul says. He says this. 1 Corinthians 11. He says, um, verse 29. Um, 
No, 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So believers. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's there. Okay? But if we weighed ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged. But listen to this. This, is, this. this shows you that they really were believers. Listen, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God will judge his children because he loves them. And sometimes that means cutting things short. Because where they're going, God's going, that ain't going to work. This is serious stuff. I remember once myself and Davina were told of some, one of our believing friends who had had a, ter- a terrible accident on life support and all that. And I remember dropping on my knees to pray and immediately just felt the Spirit say, no, it's judgment. Don't. Horrible moment. Then I found out the story. Repeated adultery. He, went, he died, went to be with the Lord. I believe he's with the Lord. I believe God dealt with him like this. Repeated adultery. Brothers would come up, please, you've got a wonderful wife and kids. Please stop doing this. Pleading with him. He had his Belshazzar moment. But this, it was actually the mercy of God. So that he would not be condemned along with the world. He's with the Lord. He's with the Lord. But I'm sure the Lord's saying, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? This is heavy stuff, guys. I don't want to hide it from you. And as I'm, I just feel I need to say this is going to come. Some of you are going to hate me for this, but blow it. I'm in this deep. <laughs> some of you have been converted. It's been called Christianity, but you've been converted to it's just psychotherapy with Christian bits added around it. It's basically God loves you, God accepts you, God thinks you're great. Oh, and Jesus, it's not Christianity. It doesn't save. It's man-centered. It's not God-centered. It's a different thing. And we need real discernment in these days. Real discernment in these days. You've got to, what's the, what's the, the real thing? It's this stuff. And you go, ah, oh, right, I get it. The Bible says judgment begins with the household of God. Church first, then the world. And I, I, you know, I cannot get away from a godly burden that until the church starts to take the holiness seriously, I, I just, I don't know, I don't know, dot, dot, dot. I don't know how the sentence ends. <laughs> but I think it's a big deal. Really big deal. Final bit, Wade. Back to Daniel. So this is what happens here. Verse 10 onwards. The queen... Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers because of an excellent spirit, knowledge 
and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honoured. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel and passing. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom's divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him. That he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. We're going to end with this. These words, tekel, mene tekel and parsin, they're finance words. They're words associated with money and with finance. And the message coming through is this to King Belshazzar. There is a world beyond your world and it has a value system. Okay, There's a world beyond this world and it, it values certain things in certain ways. And you need to understand that. It's got a currency of its own. And it's completely different to the currency you are currently operating in. And the chief culmination of the sin is in these, uh, is in these few words at the end of verse 23. God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways? He knows all your ways. Or you're going out and coming in. It's all by his, he, your whole existence is upheld by his, by his word. You have not honoured. And it's exactly the same as Romans 1. Where Paul says it's so obvious from creation that there's a God. With divine power, with the divine nature and eternal power. It's obvious. To look at creation and then say that just happened 
is the most, um, the most brazen suppressing of the truth that could be imagined. It's obvious. But it says of humanity, they neither honoured him nor gave him thanks. Two chief sins of humanity. Push it down so that you no longer honour the one who made and sustains all things or thank him. A simple thing, thanksgiving, but very, very powerful. You've been weighed in the scales. This is an awful indictment. Found wanting. You lack substance. You lack weight. You're a lightweight. It's the king. Yeah, God says you're a lightweight. There's nothing to you. God is not a respecter of persons. He's impartial. But here's the thing. Put me in the scales and what happens? Lightweight. Put you in the scales and what happens? Lightweight. Islam has the idea that at the end of all things, your good deeds and your bad deeds are going to be put in the scales. And they have the idea of scales. It's a little bit different. Hopefully your good will outweigh your bad and then you might be okay is the sort of idea. It's just not true. That, that does not deal in any way with those bad things in the scales. Who's atoning for them? It's not true. There's only one person, if you put him in the scales, he weighs something. It's Jesus. Fully God, fully man, sinless, totally righteous, not a hypocrite, self-sacrificing, Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, the Lion of Judah, the King of glory. You put him in the scales, God says, ah, ah, I'm listening. I'm listening. It's why when you pray in the name of Jesus, you're genuinely praying through, through Christ and his name. And he's like, God said, I'm listening. That's a name. That's a name. I'll listen to that name. Belshazzar? Who? Who? Put whoever you most respect in the whole world in place of that. God says, who? Put Jesus in the scales. And he weighs something. I'm going to end with one final quote from John Lennox. He says this. The equation was devastatingly simple. Belshazzar's value system was the polar opposite of what it should have been. By using the holy vessels for his banquet, he showed what a consummate hedonist he was. His own pleasures and desires were his supreme values. By the same token, he had evaluated God at zero. Now God had responded by doing the same with him. There was nothing more to be said. It was an extraordinarily solemn moment. The Bible makes it clear that judgment normally comes after death. It's appointed for man to die once, not reincarnation, to die once, and then after that comes judgment. It's very unusual that a person receives a verdict in such a spectacularly supernatural way before death, as well as having to face judgment after his death. Belshazzar's alcohol-inflamed brain went into an irrational spin in spite of the fact that he had just been tried and sentenced by God, his creator and judge. He still went madly on as if nothing was going to change. He insisted on performing the charade of investing Daniel with high office and proclaimed him the third ruler in the kingdom that unknown to him had only a few hours longer to exist. We have a response we have a response to the truth of God. 
If you've not clearly been born again, if you've not clearly made Christ your Lord, I want to urge you from the bottom of my heart to put your trust in him today, to repent of your sin and to move out of judgment and into life. It's a revolution. If you're sitting there calculating what it's going to cost you, I can help you from wasting the time and tell you everything. Everything. Put it all in his hands. What he gives back to you is up to him, but it's everything. That kind of calculating, well, if I do this and I do that, it is powerless. You will not know the joy of salvation. You're just trying to negotiate with God. No, everything. Salvation is free and it costs you everything. Simple as that. Okay? Settle it and come to Christ. These are matters of eternal life and death. These are, these are solemn matters we're dealing with today. Get right with God. Get right with God. Not leave here knowing your sins are forgiven and you're a new creation. And Jesus, go, leave this place with these words on your lips. Jesus is Lord. The joy of that. It's not me anymore. It's not him or her anymore. Not that thing anymore. Jesus is Lord. It's so liberating. And to those of you who profess to be believers, but you, you know, do you know what? What, am I, what you're having a what am I doing moment. Get right with God. Take, take it to the cross. Get right with God. There's a response to be made before God. And I'm going to do so. We've never done it in this venue before. But I'm just going to do it because I just think, hey, you know what? Let's be decisive. Let's do what we've got to do. Trusting that the Holy Spirit is just working in people's hearts. If you know you've got to get right with God, then I'm going to just ask you to just come and just kneel at the front and do business with God. Yeah? Just to clear, clarify, you're not kneeling before me. <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right? This isn't that. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? So you come forward and you start doing business with God, which means you tell him about it and he hears and he moves by his spirit and he forgives and he cleanses and he restores and he deals with stuff. It's always important, but I do believe in my heart these are urgent days. I just, but I think there's a shaking going on in the nations and in the church. And it, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I really need to get right with God because I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. As long as you're struggling, you're fine. We're all struggling. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, you know, no, there's compromise there. I've just let that slide. Or I've, just been, I've opened a door there. You know, God, I've got to get right. I'm sorry. Or if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time, I'm going to just ask you to just come down and make a public response to God. You say, well, what is it matter? Why have I got to do it in front of people? Well, you haven't, but you know what? Sometimes there's something really healthy about just, it's, it helps you to throw off self-importance, pride. Or what do people think of me? That's, when you get there, you're in a very liberated place. The Bible says the fear of man will prove to be a snare. So we're going to throw that off. So if you know you just got to get right with God, then please come down and use this space.